What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Today's episode of the NuxCast is brought to you by Game Time. Okay, folks, time for a little pop quiz. Do you think Canucks and NHL tickets are cheaper three weeks or three hours before the game? You can find the answer with Game Time, the ticket-buying app that proves patience is more than just a virtue. It can save you some serious cash. Game Time is the leader in last-minute tickets. Pick your deal, see the view from where you're sitting, and buy in two taps. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the Game Time app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. So download Game Time in the App Store or Google Play, work that clock to your advantage, and score last-minute tickets. Another edition of NuxCast with Jay Pat and Drancer coming your way from Rogers Arena after the 0-2 start to the season in Alberta and ahead of the Canucks home opener. And Drancer, before we get into the Canucks and we share a few uh, stories from the road and our Tiguan that got us from Edmonton to Calgary and out to Banff and back as well. I think we got to get into this because uh, we took a fair bit of heat late last week with the name of the podcast itself. Now, grow up, people. It is NuxCast which to me doesn't look or sound anything like Nutsack, but apparently the Twitter world has other ideas. You know, obviously there's folds to the story, and I just think we're two guys hanging around. I don't know where anyone would get the idea that it's the Nutsack. Patrick went with a Twitter poll, and of course Nutsack won. I mean, you, you put it to the people in that fashion, and it was a runaway for Nutsack. But as I said, like we're here for a mature hockey audience. We don't have time for those of you that want to call this thing the Nutsack podcast. No, people need to grow up. It's the Nutscast with J. Patton Drancer. I mean, you can't have a more professional, simple, on-the-nose name than that, and I hope people appreciate it for what it is. Yeah, so we'll neuter that storyline right here, right now. And let's get on with the fact that the Canucks didn't win in Alberta, not for lack of trying. Like, I didn't think they played all that poorly, but this isn't the tri-league, as uh, people have said. This isn't a, oh, you were good, but league. It is a bottom-line business, and the Canucks are 0-2. Yeah, and, you know, I do think there were signs of some decent performances in both of those games, especially in the Edmonton game. Other than the second period in Calgary where I really think they were undisciplined and, and got discombobulated and visually frustrated, you know, I thought they had a pretty decent trip. Unfortunately, this is no longer a team that is being looked at to simply develop young players and uh, sell hope. This is a team that's being looked at with some expectations and, and with the expectation of s- some meaningful games, you know, early in the spring. And, you know, losing to the Oilers like that, especially with the way they played, with the quality of their defensive game, you know, that's got to be disappointing and, and got to be looked at as a missed opportunity. And, and, you know, I also do think it creates some pressure going in here to this three-game homestand. These teams coming into Vancouver this week, you know, they're not the sort of teams that you expect to wipe the floor with the Canucks. You'd think they should do well, but, you know, you do suspect that if they lose on Wednesday to the Kings and, and maybe lose again over the weekend to Alain Vigneault and the Flyers, a little bit of irony there, um, you know, seats could get pretty hot in Rogers Arena pretty quickly here. 
Uh, hopefully not the ones that you and I are sitting in right now. Uh, but I'm with you. I think, look, it's only two games, but you get a three-game homestand where all three of the teams that are coming in didn't make the playoffs. So they're in your stratosphere as far as, you know, good teams in the NHL. And sure, they all want to believe that they're better. But I think uh, it's almost a consensus. It's almost unanimous around the league that people think Detroit will be dead last in the NHL. And the Red Wings come in here after the Kings and the Flyers. And the, the other part of that is that this is a road-heavy schedule. And people have known that from the moment the schedule came out. But, you know, you start with the two in Alberta, home openers for the Oilers and the Flames. You can sort of understand those results. And now the Canucks get their home opener. But after these three, they're out on the road for 9 of 12. 17 of their first 27 are away from home. Like, it is a tough part of the schedule, which puts a premium then on these games on home ice against teams that they should stand a good chance of beating. Yeah, and you know, the only sort of good thing when you look at that schedule is it is pretty broken up. You don't have until late November that really extended road trip. And I do think early in the season, and especially with the lack of schedule density that the Canucks are facing, that having just sort of the variety at least helps you, you know, maintain some focus. You're not home for too long, you're not on the road for too long, and, and I do think that that's where things can get difficult, where the idle hands sort of factor can set in, especially when you're playing as sparingly as the Canucks are here for another week. So. It'll be interesting to see, I think, that road trip with St. Louis, obviously the Stanley Cup champ, but also going through New York. Uh, you know, that New Jersey Devils team hasn't played exceptionally well, but they look revamped and exciting. That Rangers game will be an interesting one. And uh, obviously Detroit. I mean, facing Detroit twice here, you've got to pick up those points, especially with where this club's ambitions are this season. Right, so that's all ahead of the Canucks. But let's take a sec here and digest what we have seen. You touched on the effort in Edmonton. You know, they outshoot the Oilers, had 70 shot attempts themselves. They hold Edmonton to 22. And we said it that night, and then I think it was magnified in Calgary that, look, the best players on the other teams so far have been the difference makers, and the Canucks difference makers have yet to be heard from. No question. And especially with how Elias Pettersson finished last season, you suspect that there may be some whispers of concern anyway in this market. But, you know, I do think that there's some good signs from the top six, especially that Bo Horvat line. Now, Travis Green switched things up at practice yesterday. We'll see if that holds. But, you know, M Miller potentially bumping up to play with Pedersen and Besser and then, you know, breaking up that second line, which for my money has been Vancouver's best, uh, you know, have really looked like a capable top six matchup group. Uh, and putting Furland on that group with Pearson and, and Horvat. We'll see if that sort of stimulates things. Obviously, the bigger concern, I think, has to be the 0-10 power play. And especially, you know, when I look at it and I see, you know, Hughes has played a bunch of minutes, but he's only played about 10 with Elias Pettersson. And two of those 10 include that scintillating shift late in the first period in Edmonton. You know, I see those two guys as players who think the game alike, who have ideas of how to find each other and then the skill to execute those ideas. And, you know, the only way if you're going to be disciplined about matchups, to get them on the ice consistently is to have them play together on power play one. I suspect the Canucks will have to go to that sooner than later. And, from, you know, I would suggest the time for that is now. 
I think there's some mild concern about Michael Furlan, and we can talk about him in a sec. And again, it's such a small sample, especially for him who missed that middle weekend of the preseason with the virus and lost some weight. But look, he hasn't been good. Not enough forwards have been good through the first couple of games. But I think the best of the bunch has been JT Miller, who has come very much as advertised right from the day, first day of training camp in Victoria through the preseason. Like the guy just plays hard. And you can see why the Canucks were attracted to him and made the deal and I don't want to relitigate the trade at this point but you know he hasn't scored yet but a great play to Tyler Myers in the slot in Calgary that you know I, I should have probably should have been a goal there but just he doesn't take a shift off and I'm kind of curious to see what he'll look like if he plays with Pedersen and Besser because he has won a ton of puck battles already here in the early going. Yeah, I think he'd be a boon to that line and you know I do think Furland can be too. I still look at Furland as a guy who is excellent playing with those skilled players and for me that top line has just looked that little bit off you know that lack of chemistry that half sort of second that makes the difference in the hardest league in the in the world uh, between a goal and, and a chance and you know I do think Furland ultimately makes a ton of sense on that line I'd be reluctant if I was Canucks coaches to separate Horvat and Miller I think they've played together all preseason I think that chemistry has shown up early that line has again with the exception of that second period where no Canucks were good. Uh, you know, not only have they controlled play, but they've pressured defensemen on the forecheck. They've done things we haven't seen a Canucks line do in, it feels like, seven years. And I'd be reluctant to separate that. In terms of in terms of Furland with Pedersen specifically, you know, they missed that whole preseason. Obviously, that's going to be a huge talking point, especially with the start that they've gotten off to. But I still think it makes a ton of sense. Furland is reputed to be a hot starter. Obviously, that hasn't happened yet. He hasn't really shown up in terms of what maybe was expected physically. But, you know, I think there's been enough signs. And, and again, I looked at that last shift in the first period of Edmonton and just that moment where Furland didn't quite understand what a hockey brain like Petey wanted. And I just think the only way for that to work is for them to get reps together. And I think, boy, you know, Horvat, it would be nice for him to have some consistency in terms of his wingers. I think what we've seen out of Miller, I mean, for me, would indicate, uh, you know, I, I think that they should get a longer stretch together, and, and I think that it makes sense for Furland to have a little bit more time to gel with Besser and Pedersen, despite sort of his tough first week in a Canucks uniform. I think for me, the concern with Furland is that he wasn't involved physically in either game. And these are divisional games. He was a Calgary Flame. He knows what the Edmonton Oilers are all about. You would have thought that maybe that would get the competitive juices flowing on opening night and then to go into the Saddle Dome or back into the Saddle Dome. But on the other side, you know, he made his name in that Canuck Flames playoff series back in 2015. And I just haven't seen that spark. And, you know, there were the injury concerns from a year ago. The offense will come. I mean, ultimately, who knows how many goals he's going to score, how many points he'll get. But one thing he can control is his physical engagement. And I just I, I am a little bit small C concerned just with the mileage that's on that body already. Like, I need to see him get involved. And I think if he can get involved physically, do the things that we were talking about with JT Miller, then everything else will flow from there. But really, through two games, I think that was maybe my disappointment with Michael Furlan was just not a whole lot of physical engagement. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it also applies to the wider roster. When I sort of thought back to that Calgary game and I thought about Adam Gaudet and what made him stand out. And what made him stand out was the heart on his sleeve and the, you know, I don't want to say battle level or compete level or, or something silly like that, but just the work rate. The work rate was 
sky high, clearly the highest on this Canucks team. And I just don't think you can win in this league if you don't have a lot of guys playing that way. And when I think back to the Canucks performance against Calgary especially, where Adam Gaudet was in the roster, I mean, you know, I think the second line played well, but there just weren't enough guys going. There weren't enough bodies going. And, you know, to give him credit, I'd put Jake Vertanen on that list too. But unless, you know, you, sh you can't have one guy standing out for that reason. And if you do, you're going to be losing in this league. The Canucks are 0-2 as they get ready to take on the Los Angeles Kings, their home opener. There's always that excitement that goes around with the first game of the season and the expectations, the heightened expectations. One guy that has lived up to the billing, and I know you've spent a lot of time around him in the early going and wrote about him as well, is Quinn Hughes. And there's this argument about first unit versus second unit. He'll get to the top unit on the power play. It's going to happen. And, and Travis Green, I, I was glad to actually hear him after practice on Sunday admit that he has spoken to Alex Edler about it, that it's, you know, right now he's going with Edler, but he's certainly open to change. But the one thing that I think is clear, Thomas, is that this coaching staff likes Quinn Hughes a lot and trusts him already at both ends, both ends of the ice. I mean, the ice time in the first two games bears that out. For sure, and one thing I really liked about Travis's comment was the idea of Quinn Hughes playing at the top of the circle, playing in sort of a forward spot. And you know, I think that sort of creativity in terms of how this club should and can use a unique piece like Quinn Hughes, I think that can pay off. You know, Quinn Hughes at the bumper, give it to me. Like, I'm, I'm willing to see Quinn Hughes try a variety of different things, especially on the power play. Uh, because I think he can be a major contributor in in that spot. And I don't really know, with a player like him, who has this high-end hockey brain, but also wins all these battles, whether it's knocking that puck down to pin the flames further, whether it's his stick-checking on a variety of you know elite forwards on the rush. He wins a ton of battles, he keeps plays alive, and he can find guys all over the ice. I think there's no limit to what he can do and what positions he can play in. But I do think also what's kept him in the lineup, what's kept him playing these massive minutes for a 19-year-old has been that defensive solidity. That's what I wrote about yesterday at The Athletic, but uh, I, you know, I was struck by how mature and advanced he looked in his own end. And boy, if you're the Canucks, what a huge development that this isn't just a guy who can play for you, who can contribute, but who can play major minutes in your top four. You know. It, disappointing to come out of Alberta with no points, but if there's one sort of sign you're looking for that might, you know, presage better days, not just in the future, but this season, I think that's it. All right, let's speculate, because that's what we like to do on things like a podcast. You had the conversation with Travis Green and Banff where he started down the road of comparisons to other guys either in the NHL now or, you know, from days gone by in the NHL when talking about Quinn Hughes, and then he stopped himself, and I think he realized... Like one of the things that Jim has done over the years here, whether it was Sutter and Patrice Bergeron or, uh, you know, Tyler Myers and Chara because he's tall. Like Jim, I think, has at times unfairly painted a few of his players, you know, with this brush of other greats in the National Hockey League. And it was just interesting to see Travis start down that road and then sort of catch himself. But who do you think he wanted to compare Quinn Hughes to? So my money was on Brian Rafalski at first. I thought, you know, Given the stature and given what we've seen from Quinn Hughes and especially regarding his smart stick, I thought it was likely to be someone like Rafalski, but listened to Travis Green on Halford and Bruff this morning and Bruff sort of dug into it a little bit and Travis started talking about all the times he spent as a young man playing with Scott Niedermeyer. And now you can understand why he'd be reluctant to drop that comparison. 
And, you know, I guess it makes sense. I mean, Travis was really talking about who Quinn Hughes reminds him of in the context of some of his edge work and his sort of skating in small spaces. And, and I can kind of see that. But, boy, when I think of Scott Niedermeyer, I think of Connor McDavid on the blue line. I think of a top five skater in the history of the NHL. Now, I think Quinn Hughes could be a strong skater. I think Quinn Hughes could be an elite skater in the NHL. But I do not think that he's got the sort of rocket boots that Scott Niedermeyer used to terrorize the league uh, for 10 years there. Yeah, and he's seven games into his NHL <laughs> career too. Like, you know, even putting McDavid, and you're right, I think time will tell and be kind to Connor McDavid. But, you know, I always find it a little funny putting McDavid on the all-time greats list just given where he is in his career. But he'll get there. But, yeah, seven games for Quinn Hughes. We probably should slow that roll just a little bit. And I'm with you in as much as... Like when I was thinking of the comparison, I was thinking more about Quinn Hughes defending in the NHL at his size and, you know, just the, the physical disadvantage that he's going to be at. We saw it on opening night against Leon Dreisaitl. So I don't necessarily draw that straight line from Quinn Hughes at his size to a guy like Scott Niedermeyer. No, and you know, I do want to I do want to plug something that'll be dropping on the Athletic next week because I had an opportunity to chat with the Russian Rocket Pavel Bure uh, yesterday called me at about midnight and I asked him about Connor McDavid and I said when you see Connor McDavid skate does it remind you of anybody and he said I guess I played like that a little bit but Connor McDavid is a lot faster and stronger than me so I thought that was pretty interesting because I, I know I never thought of anyone as being maybe stronger and faster than that guy but he sees Connor McDavid and even Pavel Bure even the Russian rocket himself is in awe. That's fascinating. I look forward to that. I mean, anytime we hear, we don't hear from Pavel that much anymore, but wow, to think that he thinks McDavid's faster than he was, maybe we should show him a few of his own tapes from, <laughs> from way back when. Hey, I don't know if it happens in every market, but this one does seem fixated on what happens in the bottom six forward group. And a lot of noise from Alberta came across the Rockies over the weekend because Louis Erickson, look, the guy found a way into the lineup through the first 69 games last season was eventually a healthy scratch against the Rangers in game number 70. It was the only time that Travis Green parked him. And I kind of was of the belief that once Travis went down that road with a veteran guy, that it might be easier to scratch him. I thought that that was going to be the first of a few down the stretch late last season. That wasn't the case. There were some injuries, whatever, you know, it kept Louie in the lineup. Totally different story here. Two games in, Louis Erickson, and we got the, the hints on Friday in Banff when he was out there as Oscar Fantenberg's defense partner. You know, it didn't take a whole lot to read the tea leaves. And I guess, you know, I wonder now, where does it go from here for Louis? Because he's not just fighting to get his spot back in the lineup, but all of a sudden a healthy Tyler Mott now sort of creates some real clutter on that fourth line. Boy, this is going to be a fascinating one. You know, when the Canucks open the season with that Erickson Levo Sutter line, it made sense in that if you're going to try and milk anything of value from the last three years of Louis Erickson's contract, I mean, clearly the feet aren't there. Clearly the net front game that helped him score 30 goals in Boston isn't there anymore. But, you know, the defensive game, the solidity along the wall, his, you know, he's still an elite stick checker in this league. But, so if you're going to milk anything of hockey value, it made sense to do it on sort of this camouflage kind of third line with, with Brandon Sutter. And I actually didn't think he was all that bad against Edmonton, personally. I thought that line obviously had that tough moment. Louis Erickson was the one streaking down. 
Uh, Matt Benning sort of did the pinch there. Uh, Sutter turned it over and got all the heat. But I didn't think Louis Erickson performed so badly that he maybe deserved to be the forward sort of taken out of the lineup there. That said, when Adam Gaudet comes in and, and plays the way he did and shows this level of fire that I don't know we've that we've seen from Louis during his entire Canucks tenure, uh, boy, you, you wonder how how tough this situation could get and how long Erickson could be in the press box for, especially with Mott coming back, as you said, and down the road with Roussel. So we'll have to we'll have to monitor it. I still think if they're going to get some value out of Louis, it's it's got to be in sort of a more defensive role. Adam Gaudet on the third line indicates that maybe the Canucks are looking for a little more offense there. If, that, if that's the case, you know, this Louis Erickson millstone, uh, boy, it's going to become even more removable as the, as the club goes along here. It's fascinating to watch because Louis kind of becomes a scapegoat, but I wonder, too, if Brandon Sutter moves to the wing and the fourth line as it's currently constructed, you know, struggles to keep its head above water at evens. Like, is Jay Beagle's job a certainty on every given night if you have Brandon Sutter on the wing who could then drop down and be your fourth-line center and give Travis Green, you know, a new look and, and some different options? It'll be interesting to see. I think at the end of the day, too, Jay Beagle's work on the pe pe penalty kill is going to keep him in the lineup one way or another. And, you know, one significant bright spot from the Canucks game in Calgary when they were otherwise, uh, you know, mediocre at best, uh, despite some flashes, was the play of that penalty killing unit. That penalty killing unit didn't just stop the Flames from scoring because Markstrom was great, which was the case in Edmonton on Wednesday. You know, they stopped the Flames from setting up. They were fantastic in terms of denying entries and playing that pressure game through the neutral zone, and Jay Beagle and Tim Schaller were a big part of that. Additionally, while Brandon Sutter's, you know, considered to be an elite penalty killing piece by Travis and a guy he trusts in tough matchups, Jay Beagle's ability to win those right-handed draws uh, outpaces Sutter's by a fair bit, and, and I think the Canucks will want that in their lineup. So I, I think that we'll see, at the very least, a long run of Mott with Schaller and Beagle together uh, before the Canucks look to do anything more drastic on their fourth line. I also do think that, you know, Travis likes the poise and the competitiveness and the work rate that Gaudet showed. But I also do think he's matchup conscious enough that he likes Brandon Sutter there, almost as a sort of piece that will stop other teams' coaches from jumping Gaudet, getting their first line on really quickly when they see Gaudet out there. I think he likes that as a, as a safety blanket. Uh, I wouldn't be shocked if we see Sutter get a long run on the wing, but I would be very surprised if we see him get a long run at fourth line center. It was interesting. The the I mean the things that you just talked about there with Gaudet. We saw that in the first period in Calgary. He had a couple of early shifts, didn't play a lot in the second half of the first period. But when Travis sensed that other guys just weren't going in the second period and Godet was one of the guys who did seem to have some jump, from that point on, at even strength at the very least, Godet took a regular turn. His most ice time came in the third period, had some opportunities. He had a great chance, actually. The puck just skipped over his stick, and he was lamenting that when we talked to him after the game as well. And then... You know, again, picking up clues from Sunday's practice, which to me was interesting too, in as much as they played a late game in Calgary, flew home, and were back on the practice ice on Sunday. Now, they had Monday off, but Travis talked about the fact that with so few games here in the first couple of weeks, they only play four over the first two weeks of the season, 
you know, he just wanted guys to get some puck touches, especially since his offensive guys are struggling right now. So there seemed to be a little bit of method behind the madness because I was surprised, quite frankly, I had to zip from the airport straight to the rink and was able to get here in time to uh, catch the tail end of, of practice. Not that there was a whole lot to glean from that, but Godet was out there with a regular line. So that certainly, you know, we'll see what happens at practice in game day skate, but it certainly looks right now like Godet's going to get a chance to stay in the lineup as they move forward. Now, we don't have the budget or the production here on the podcast yet. We're working on a few things, and hopefully it'll come. And by the way, if you have, we, we thank everybody for the early reaction and responses to the podcast. It's been great. It's been good to get back uh, here doing this and kind of finding the rhythm with Tom. And, you know, if you are a listener on your chosen podcast player, Feel free. We encourage you to uh, rate us, review us, uh, help us grow here. Because I saw somebody sent along a photo of us uh, perched quite nicely between Ferraro and Drager and ahead of 31 Thoughts. Like, that's pretty heady company to be keeping in the hockey world in the early going. Pretty wild. And I've got to give Chris Faber credit. It was Chris Faber who noticed it, and I appreciated the screenshot. Obviously made my day. I was very excited and, and very appreciative of all our listeners and, and Canucks Nation for for tuning in and helping us sort of have the start that we've had, uh, kind of a diametric opposite to how the Canucks have started, but that's all right. We're very excited going into episode three, just as the team's looking forward to episode, uh, to game three. I got to also give you credit for coming to practice on Sunday from the airport. I, I got in three hours earlier than you and I went straight to bed and napped. Um, so I appreciated you being here and I appreciated you sharing that answer that Travis Green gave regarding Quinn Hughes on PP1. That was uh, fascinating stuff. And, you know, you are clearly the Adam Gaudet of the Canucks media pool. Like your work rate and effort um, really makes the rest of us look bad by comparison. Yeah, I got a few years on Adam <laughs> Gaudet, though, so I'm not sure that comparison is apt. Uh, I said, though, we don't have the budget yet, but this will be an ongoing feature. Two games in, the Tim Schaller update. Where is he in his chase for 10 goals? Zero goals, not a ton of chances, drew a penalty. He's played decent defensively. I also have to be careful. I know I'm not supposed to do practice play-by-play, but you know, I did just laugh during a team meeting, and the last time I did that, Jacob Markstrom called me out in the, in the locker room. So I do have to be a little bit careful about my reactions. Uh, anyway, the Tim Schaller update is no goals yet. Looking like uh, I'm going to have to start saving my pennies to buy you some uh, winter fresh <laughs> toward the tail end of this season. All right, let's finish up here with a couple of stories from the road because we did have some fun. We rented a Volkswagen Tiguan in Edmonton, uh, traveled south the day after. That was Thursday, I suppose, uh, from Edmonton to Calgary with a stop in Lacombe, right? We were pondering our lunch options, and we saw the signs on the side of the road. Huge difference between Canadian and American highway systems is on the U.S., in the U.S., everything's right there, the side of the road. Middle Alberta, we had to venture off the highway, what, about 10 minutes or something, very sleepy town of Lacombe, but uh, the four of us, it was you, it was me, it was Harm and Patrick Johnson, and we decided that subway was acceptable for all of us, right? So we go in, and who knew that the subway in Lacombe, like there was going to be a lunch rush, but we beat it, fortunately. Like By the time we got to the, to the place you order, like, it was lined up out the door. It was lined up out the door. Now, I got in first just because I'm selfish. And I think you were bringing up the, the back of the pack for our little travel group. But I loved 
the exchange that you over, you got to tell the story the exchange you overheard between the guy in line and the sandwich artist in Lacombe, Alberta. Yeah, I, I was stunned. I'd never heard this before, but you know, I order last and and I get my whatever foot long turkey sub, and the guy behind me has a list. You know how you sometimes have a list of subs you need for you and someone else, and so he goes to he go, goes to order and he says, "I'll have two subways, please." And the sandwich artist, the poor confused soul, sort of cocks their head and looks at him and their their eyes narrow with confusion. They go, excuse me. And he goes, yeah, I'll have two foot long subways. And and the sandwich artist tries to help them out. Like they try to send them a lifeline. They're like, okay, well, two foot long subs. What would you like on those? And the guy persists. He goes, I'd, I'd like one foot long turkey subway and one foot long tuna subway. And I was doing everything I could not to laugh out loud at this guy. Uh, to, to rewind though really quickly, we ended up at Subway because there's a train going through Lacombe and so we couldn't get across to, to go to Timmy's where, where we wanted to go and of course if either Subway or Timmy's would like to sponsor us, please let us know. But we did this all after we stopped at the side of the highway on a turnoff so that Jeff Patterson could do his seventh radio hit of a 24-hour stretch and, uh, and we, just, we just got out of the car and stood in front right on the side of a turnoff, uh, you know, on Highway 2, uh, which, was, uh, which was pretty amusing. How many, how many call-ins do you think you did over the course of uh, that Alberta trip? Oh, it was like three or four a day, and we were out there for, <laughs> for five days, so some simple math would tell you that it was probably in and around uh, the 20 mark. But uh, you're right, who knew that uh, the Tim Hortons in Lacombe was on the wrong side of the tracks? But I think my favorite moment of the carpool, and I know we got a lot of play with the, the Banff Boys photo. Uh, we'll always have the Banff Boys photo. But on the drive from Calgary to Banff, spectacular Alberta October day. Like, you couldn't ask for a better day to take in the splendor that is Banff and the Rocky Mountains. And look, I'm jaded. I'm born and raised in Vancouver. Mountains really don't mean a whole lot to me now. Like, I take them totally for granted. I will admit that. And yet, about a half hour out of Calgary, all you can see is the snow-capped peaks of the Rockies, like, sprawled out in front of you. It truly was glorious. And, and like, sort of in that moment, I recognized why people travel from around the world to take in uh, this... Vista that like it, it, it I kind of I don't know I had an awakening about the Rockies on this trip so there I am behind the wheel and we kind of round a bend and the Rockies are just they're they're there they're everywhere you feel you're completely surrounded and in my head the conversation that I'm having in my head is damn this is incredible and as I'm having that sort of internal conversation from the back seat harm pipes up and says wow and I'm thinking this is so good like the young guy on his first road trip in the NHL, he's taking all this in, like, good, like, good on harm, like, he's, he's sort of set aside the boy genius label for a sec and is taking in the glory that is the Canadian Rockies. And as I have that thought, he follows up his wow with, man, the Marley's right side, the right side of the Marley's defense is so deep. <laughs> and I wanted to pull the car over and, like, treat him like one of my kids. I was like, Harm, you're in the Rockies. Like, say, just soak all the, drink it in. <laughs> and, but he's doing the deep dive on the Marley's defense in the back seat of the car. Well, you know, you don't get the boy genius label if you see the world like everyone else, right? And, you know, one thing I will tell our listeners is watching the games with Harm, the way that I might notice 
that a line change has happened or the way that I might notice that the a player has gone down the tunnel and actually there's only 17 skaters on the bench. The way that I notice something simple like that, Harmon notices for, oh wait, the center wasn't where he was supposed to be or, oh, he didn't drop back far enough or, oh, that guy wasn't coming low, slow and, and available like he should have. The way that he sees systems is just stunning. He debuted today at the Dial Files at the, at the Athletic and just just sitting with him over those two games and watching and seeing what he sees during a game and how different it is from what I see or from what almost anyone I've watched a game with has seen uh, really, really blew me away. Uh, you know, it was it was a pretty stunning and eye-opening experience for me. That said, I mean, we do need to work with him on, on making sure to take in one of, you know, the world, certainly one of Canada's great wonders. All right, and then finally, and I do have to thank you because... You probably didn't know this, but like, like I'm, I'm not alone in this. Billy Minor Pie at the keg, is, like dessert. I'm not sure it can get better. Like whoever came up with Billy Minor Pie way back when, if they're still with the company, they deserve a raise all these years later. But I'm not sure that you can improve a whole lot in the dessert realm on a Billy Minor Pie. And I have you to thank for. A free, not one, but two Billy Minor Pie. We had a little fun uh, media get-together in Calgary on the Friday night after we got back from Banff. You know, season opened a road trip. We just thought we'd go out and sort of have some fun on a Friday in Calgary, wind up at the keg. And we'll make the long story a little bit shorter, but you were able to get us free dessert because your steak wasn't quite to your liking. Yeah, and you know, I'm one of those guys who throw it on the grill, put it for a few seconds on each side and serve it to me. I, I like my meat bloody. And, you know, when, so when I cut into it and it was, you know, quite brown inside, I, I knew I was sending it back. And, you know, I called my shot. I told you guys, I said, well, you know, the good thing about this is we're getting free dessert. So when they came back and they offered to simply comp my meal, I couldn't let it stand. I had to ask for some dessert in addition to it. And I, I believe I asked specifically. I said, I'm, you know, what we'd really like is two slices of Billy Minor pie. And, of course, they decided to do that in addition to comping my meal, which was very kind of them and always nice to start out the hockey season with a successful spot of negotiation, especially when it benefited, uh, you know, all of my friends with the media pool, a lot of fun, and, uh, and obviously the pie was delicious. It was. So I thank you for that. I thank you for your contributions here on the Nux Cast. Say it with us, everybody. Nux Cast. There should be no confusion. We want to put that to rest. Uh, we're doing this twice a week throughout the hockey season. This one is free and available. If you're listening to it, uh, you've already found us. But uh, the second one later in the week will be behind the athletic paywall. So if you're not a subscriber yet, uh, and there's so many good reasons to be, this is just another layer of content that you will find only at The Athletic and TheAthletic.com. So for Thomas Drance, Jeff Patterson, thanks for checking us out here on the Knoxcast on The Athletic and TheAthletic.com.